following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, we are in, uh, this morning we're back in our series in the book of Exodus. So we took a break last week. We had Mark McConnell talking on shame. Uh, but we're picking up our Exodus series again today, and we've only got two weeks left. So this has been a long journey. Feels like a bit of an Exodus journey for some of you. Uh, but it's lasted us a good part of the year, and we're right, right down the home stretch now. So just two weeks left this week and next week. And then uh, on the 29th of November we, is the first Sunday in Advent. So we'll start an Advent series at this stage. So we're right at the tail end of this series. This morning we're in Exodus 33. So you can be turning over there, and Jane is going to come and read the passage for us this morning. Thank you, Jane. So let's uh, get our bearings again in the story in the book of Exodus. We've been out of it for a couple of weeks. Uh, so where are we in this story? We're with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is all taking place around about a year after Israel left Egypt. So that's chronologically where we're up to now. Uh, about a year later, they've arrived at Mount Sinai, and they've spent about a month there, been camped out at the base of Mount Sinai around about a month. And, and so over the past several sessions in this series, we've talked about a series of events that have happened at the base of Mount Sinai in the Israelite camp. They've happened in reasonably quick succession, one after another. So this began, do you remember, with Israel creating the golden calf, creating the statue, and they overlaid it with gold, and they bowed down and they worshipped it, the golden calf. And, and remember they said, here are your gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. And Moses was furious about this. God was furious about this. Moses came down the mountain after that event, took the tablets of the law and smashed them, reflecting the fact that this covenant between God and Israel was broken, was in tatters. The relationship between God and Israel had completely disintegrated at this point. And God says, because of this, my presence is no longer going to go with you. Do you remember this? God makes that statement. I, you can carry on your journey if you want to. You can, you, you'll even get to the promised land eventually, but I'm not going to go with you. My presence won't go with you. And so that begins then this whole back and forth between Moses and God, this back and forth argument where Moses is interceding for, for Israel before God. And finally, God agrees and says, okay, I'll go with you. My presence will go with you. I'll accompany you on your journey. And that is the main resolution to the story that we've been hoping for so far. That's where we're up to at this point. But that is not the end of the story. That's not the end of this interaction. As soon as that's happened, as soon as God has said, okay, Moses, I'll journey with you. I agree. I'll come with you. This is all okay. Moses goes back in with another question. Moses comes straight back to God with another question or a request. And he asks God, he says, now, show me your glory. And it sounds like Moses is pushing his luck. Because God's already answered the main request that he had, which is, please come with us, God. Please journey with us. And God has said, yes, I'll do that. But now Moses is like, that's not enough. Now, God, I want you to show me your glory. Why does he ask that question? Because Moses knows that the relationship between God and his people that is broken down because of the golden calf is not yet fully repaired. It's not yet fully healed. God has said he's going to journey with Israel. He said, yes, my presence will go with you. But Moses knows there's still something wrong. It's kind of like when you've had an argument with someone and you patch it up, but you know there's still something wrong. It's what's happening here. Moses has still got the sense. We're, not, we're still not completely okay here, God. 
Things are not, are not fully right. God has not said yet that he's forgiven anybody. He's agreed to go with Israel and my presence will go with you, but he hasn't said anything about forgiveness. So there's still this tension in God's relationship with his people. And so what Moses is asking for is, God, we need you to renew your relationship with us. We need you to renew your covenant with us. What Moses wants is to go back to when God revealed his presence on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that? When God came down in the cloud? And what did he do? He revealed his glory. So Moses is saying, I want to go back to that. We've got to go back to that point where you revealed your glory and then you made a covenant with us and you said, we are your people and you claimed us as your own. We've got to do all that again, God. That's what Moses is saying. He's effectively saying, I know that we're in chapter 33, God, but we need to go back to chapter 19 and we need to walk through it again. We need to replay all this because it's been a horrible month at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we've got to try and repeat this and, 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 and do better next time. And that's really what happens. God reveals his presence to Moses in this chapter, although differently to the way Moses asks for. We'll look at that. And then he renews his covenant with his people. And then he gets Moses to write the law again on some new tablets, reflecting the fact that the covenant is being renewed. The covenant is being restored. God is entering into a relationship again with his people. He's taking them back. And finally, by the end of chapter 34, the relationship is fully healed and fully restored, and the Exodus journey can continue. What I want to look at today is this encounter Moses has with God on the top of Mount Sinai, which is central to the whole thing, the central to the whole covenant renewal. Moses says to God, show me your glory. But look at how God answers him. In verse 19, the Lord says, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. So God doesn't give Moses what he asks for, does he? Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, well, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. He changes things. He doesn't give Moses glory. He gives Moses Goodness. Why does he do this? Why does he flip it around? Partly, I think, because Moses can't handle the glory of God. Nobody can see the glory of God. At least they can't see the glory of God and live to tell about it. God says this. He says, no, nobody can see my face, Moses. You, you, there's no way you can possibly handle the full-on glory of my being. The best you can do, says God, is, Moses, I'm going I'm to pass by you and you'll be able to see my back. And there's an old Jewish saying that goes, if you see someone's back, you have seen the place where they've just been. So God is saying, Moses, the best I'm going to offer you is that I'll pass by you and you will see the place where I've just been. Isn't that great? Moses gets to see the place where God has just been. But secondly, I think God knows that what, what Moses really needs at this point is not to see his glory, but to know his goodness more deeply. After all of the sin of Israel, after all of their stubbornness, after that terrible act of idolatry, what Israel needs to know, what Moses really needs to know is the goodness of God. They need to know that God is still good, that he is still with them, that he is still for them, that he is still kind towards them. That's what they need to know. Glory will come later. Glory's next week. Glory is chapter 40, when the glory of the Lord descends into the tabernacle. But that's not today. Today is goodness. Today is God saying, I'm going I'm to proclaim my name. I'm going to show you my goodness, Moses. And so he does. He takes Moses up the mountain. 
up back up Mount Sinai. Moses has been up there a number of times. Now he's got a little path probably up the, up the mountain. And he takes Moses all the way up the mountain and then he hides him in a, in a cleft in the rock, hides him in a shallow cave in the rock. You know, this is where that hymn Rock of Ages comes from. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. You know this one. Hide, let me hide myself. Moses wrote that while he was up on the mountain, right? No, he didn't really. But that's where, that's where it comes from. Some of you are like, really? I didn't know Moses wrote that. It's a pretty old song. Not that old. So, but that's, that's the language. That's the imagery of Rock of Ages. So Moses is sort of in this shallow little enclosure in the, in, in the, in the side of the cliff, and God passes by. And Moses sees his back. But in fact, when you read the text here, there's very little emphasis on what Moses sees. It's not, not, not a visual symphony. There's much more emphasis on what Moses hears. That's the heart of it, especially verse 6 and 7. What Moses hears is God proclaiming his name. What Moses hears is God speaking of his character, Yahweh, Yahweh, the gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving and faithful. God's just describing himself to Moses. He's passing Moses by this beautiful scene, just passing Moses by. He's describing himself to Moses, just one adjective after another, spilling over, describing the character of God. And this really, when you look at verse 6 and 7 specifically, this is one of the, the purest richest, deepest definitions of the character of God you will find anywhere in the Bible. It's a foundational description of the character of Yahweh, the character of God, and these words and phrases then get picked up and used again and again and again all through the rest of the Bible. But it starts here. This is a basic, baseline definition of who God is. Moses needed to hear this. We need to hear this, right? We need to hear who God is so that this description of God's character corrects our distortions of God's character that we live with. That's the point, because we so quickly develop these distorted views of who God is. And if you have a distorted view of who God is, it affects everything. It affects your whole life. Everything's off if your view of who God is is off. It's like if the compass on a yacht is off a few degrees... At every stage of that yacht's journey, it's going to get further and further off course until it ends up in a destination completely different from the one it thought it was going to. If your perception of who God is and his fundamental character, if that is off by a few degrees, at every stage in your spiritual journey, you're just going to get further and further off course. It might not seem like a big thing at the start, but you're going to end up in a destination way different to where you thought you were heading just because you've allowed some delusion about who God is to contaminate the reality of who God is. A few years ago, there was a study that came out by some sociologists in the States. They interviewed 3,000 American teenagers about their views on God and faith and religion and so on. 3,000, one of the biggest studies of its kind ever done. And they compiled all the raw data after these telephone and face-to-face -face interviews. They compiled it all and wrote a book called Soul Searching, uh, The Religious Lives of American Teenagers. And they came up with a three-word phrase that they believe most accurately describes the religion of American teenagers, who are now American young adults. And the words are moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Big words, but what it basically means is God is moralistic and that he is fundamentally concerned about rules and me living a good life. Therapeutic, God's overriding desire is for me to feel happy and good about my life. Deism, God is fundamentally distant, impersonal, and remote. 
That's the new religion of American youth. That's how they see God. However they name him, that seems to be how they are seeing him. Now, if that's your view of God, what, what does your life look like? What does your faith look like? What does your worldview look like? What is your expression of, those, of that view of God? It's going to be completely off kilter. It's going to be completely out of step with the biblical story. But if you, if you buy into that, if you buy into any one of those distortions of God's character or any other iteration on that theme, your, your entire expression of Christian life is going to be completely off course. We have to ground ourselves in a right view of who God is. This was the lie right back in the garden. How did Satan first tempt Eve to eat that forbidden fruit? By, by planting seeds of doubt about the character of God. Did God really say? Is God really like that? So Eve's act of disobedience is preceded by Satan undermining her trust in the character of God. And ever since then, the evil one has been sowing the same seeds. Did God really say, is God really like, can you really know, is he like this? If he can shift our perception of God by a few degrees, he's knocked our whole lives, of course. So we need this. We need this as much as Moses did. We need to hear God proclaiming his name over our lives. And, and really, all I want to do this morning, it's a pretty simple goal, is in verse 6 and 7, God gives six words to describe himself to Moses. He uses six adjectives to describe who he is, and I just want to walk through them. That's all it is. I just want to define six words, and then we go home. Okay? And so really, my, my whole goal is if at the end of this service today, if you sit back and just say, man, God is good, I'll feel like that's a, that's a good day's work for me. I'm happy with that. There, just, there is no other application coming. This is not about go home and be better and mind your manners and whatever. This is about we've just got to soak ourselves in the goodness of God because our perception of God affects everything. Six words that God uses to describe himself. The first is this in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate. Compassionate. The Hebrew word is rahum. It's translated compassionate. What it means is not just an external act of compassion, but the inner heart of compassion that God has. It's a wonderful place to start with God's description because it's not just God doing nice things for us. It's God being driven by compassion. I don't know how easy it is for you to think about God as being emotional. Does that fit for you? How does that sit with you? Think of God as an emotional being. We sometimes think that kind of would make him weak or that would make him volatile or impulsive. But in the Bible, God is highly emotional. He gets angry. And then he gets overjoyed. And here he's compassionate. He's driven by deep, deep feelings of rahum, compassion. In fact, God in the Bible even has mixed emotions. And you see this all the time. It's like God's intention with himself. On the one hand, he is frustrated by human sin. And he's grieved by all the things we do that defy him and ignore him and just push him out of our lives. He's grieved by that. His heart is broken by that. And yet at the same time, his rahum just kicks in. His compassion just kicks in. And he cannot let us go. That's why God is so frustrated with Israel. And yet then you read texts like, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? Can a mother give up her own child? No, I can't give you up either. God's, what you're hearing is God's rahum, his deep, deep compassion. He feels these, these, he lives in a tension of emotions, being grieved by the way we treat him so often, 
and yet just relentlessly driven with compassion toward us. Don't you see this in Jesus? Just moved with compassion. That's what the Gospels say. Just moved towards the one in need. It's like, almost like he can't stop himself. He sees the poor. He sees the, he sees the marginal. He sees the one who's despised. He's driven, driven by Rahum towards that person, just driven by deep, deep compassion. That's the nature of God. Yahweh is the compassionate one. Now, the next word God uses is the word gracious, the word hanun, Hebrew word hanun, gracious. And those words often go together. You hear those. If you read the Psalms, you'll often hear the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Gracious and compassionate, just sort of dovetail together. And gracious, of course, takes us to the heart of the gospel. The word grace comes out of that word. I think the best way to understand grace, the best way to understand the graciousness of God is to line it up next to justice and mercy. Justice, mercy, grace. It's how you see grace in its clearest form. So justice is getting what you deserve. Pretty simple, right? Justice is you failed the exam, you get an F. Okay? So young adults, if, that, if that's happened to you, you fail the exam, you get an F, that would be just. That's just what you deserve. That's what's expected. That's what's fair. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So mercy is you fail the exam, but you get to reset it. You get to reset the exam. If your lecturer said that to you, sorry, you failed. It is an F, but I'm going to let you take that exam again. What would you say that lecturer was like? Merciful. That's a merciful lecturer. Didn't have to. You didn't deserve it, but they've given you a second shot at the exam. That's mercy. But grace is different. Grace is not mercy. Grace goes further than mercy. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. Grace is, you, pass, you, you failed the exam, but here's an A. You've completely flunked it, but you get an A. Now, that's not just merciful. That's ridiculous. That's insane. That's just crazy. That, is, that, that defies logic defies the system. It's not supposed to happen that way. You're not supposed to act that way. It's not fair. It's it almost like it's too good. You almost feel a little bit angry. It's like, no, but you can't do that. That's just not the way it works. Welcome to grace. Not fair, not just, not what we deserve, almost too much. It's lavish. It's prodigal. It's just extravagant. It's ridiculous. The fact that God loves you, the fact that God has saved you, it's not, that's not nice. It's ridiculous. It's, we, we, we deserve the opposite of that, but yet time and time again in the Scriptures, God gives us the opposite of what we've deserved. We deserve death. He gives us life. We deserve shame. He gives us honor. We deserve destruction, and yet He preserves us. We deserve alienation, and yet He just draws us close. He gives us intimacy with Him. God is a God of grace, giving us precisely the opposite of what we deserve. It's crazy. Grace is crazy defies logic, defies justice, that's for sure. You don't want justice. You don't want what you deserve. You know, some people say, well, I just want what I deserve. I want God to be fair. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because if God was fair with you, you wouldn't be thanking him for it. What we desperately need is grace. And that's what God's given us. Old Testament and new, he's a God of grace. So Yahweh is 
is compassionate and he's gracious. And the picture just needs to build. That's the idea here. These just build and build and build layer upon layer. So the third one is uh, my favorite, slow to anger. Slow to anger. And the Hebrew phrase here is arek apayim. And do you know what it literally means? Having a long nose. That is great. So if you are one of these people that believe the Bible must be taken literally, must be read literally, must be translated literally, you must translate that verse, God has a long nose. I want to see you write that in your Bible with a pen. God has a long nose. That's literally what this, that, and this is God speaking. Passes Moses by, I've got a long nose. That's, what, that's what's happening here. But as best I can tell, as best I can figure out, that the, where this came from is, you know how there's, there's that saying or that cliche that when people get angry, they have a long, uh, red nose. Their nose goes red. I don't know whether that really happens, does it? People really have a red nose when they get angry, but that's the idea. And so somehow the idea here is that if, if a person has a long nose, it represents the fact they take a long time to get angry because the nose would take a long time to go red because it's so long. The Hebrews had some awesome sayings. That seems to be how this one got put together. So the idea is slow to anger or long-suffering. Some of your translations may say that. It's a good word, long-suffering. God suffers with our sin. He's very patient with us. And you see here, when you line this up against compassion, you see God is emotional in the sense he's driven by compassion, and yet he is fully in control of his emotions. He's not impulsive. He doesn't just lash out in anger. He doesn't snap like we do as parents a lot of the time. He doesn't just, just, just punish on the spot. He's not hasty in his judgment. That's what we deserve, but he doesn't do that. He bears with us. He put up with us. He put up with Israel for a long, long... He hold, he's restrained. He's restrained in his judgment, restrained in his anger. We do things that incite God's anger a lot, but he is very restrained in his expression because he wants to give us time to come to our senses. He wants to give us time to calm ourselves down and then seek his mercy and his grace and to be restored. And he wants that so much that he's slow to anger. So God apparently has a long nose. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering with us. He's restrained in the expression of his wrath towards us and towards Israel in the Old Testament. And then the fourth word, abounding in love. And that's just one word in Hebrew, the word hesed. It's a beautiful word, very important word. I worked with a woman at Laidlaw College a couple of years ago. She's doing her entire PhD on this one word, hesed. It's that important, and there's no shortage of material in the Old Testament around this Hebrew word. And, and it's often translated love, simply love, or loving kindness, sometimes you find, or here it's abounding in love. It's a love that always occurs in the context of a covenant relationship, not just random love for anyone, but it's a covenant love. It's a love within an established relationship. It's God's covenant love for his people. And the thing with this love, it's not our modern version of love that's just driven by romantic attachment. We can fall in love, you can fall out of love. This is a relentless love. The best translation I've heard of it is unrelenting love. Unrelenting. It's the love we sung about. Your love never fails, never gives up, never lets go. Never runs out on me. That's hesed. A love that you cannot get to the end of. A love that you cannot run dry. A love that you will never, despite your best efforts, exhaust the supply of. It is an unfailing love. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, 
there's a beautiful description of this kind of love. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote that, talks about God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's wonderful. And I didn't realize until I'd read that this week and thinking about said she must have had that word in mind. She must have had said in mind when she wrote that. And she comes back, she uses that phrase, that long phrase, again and again in the way she tells the Bible stories. Just comes back to the love of God, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the said of God. Just pursues us relentlessly and hangs in there, even when it's not reciprocated. And then after abounding in love, we have hemet. That's the word faithful. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. It's very similar to abounding in love. It simply means that God is reliable. He's trustworthy. What God says will happen. Who God says he is, is absolutely bedrock. It will not change. That is a true description. So that means God is utterly dependable. We can take our lives and place them fully into God's hands with total confidence because God is hemet. He is reliable. He is the trustworthy one. His word is completely solid. He's dependable. He's able to be trusted. And then finally, God is forgiving. God describes himself as forgiving, forgiving sin. And this is the word, this Hebrew word, nasar, forgiving. This is the word that Moses has been desperate to hear. You remember he went up on the mountain after the golden calf incident. He went up on the mountain and what did he ask God for? He says, God, forgive their sin. He's seeking the Nassar. He's seeking the forgiveness of God. God, forgive their sin, please. Even if it means you take my life. Even if it means you blot me out of your book. But what did God say? We didn't say anything about Nassar. Didn't say anything about forgiveness. In fact, he said, no, the one who has sinned. He's the one I'll blot out of my book. So Moses has been longing to hear of the forgiveness of God. There's been this big question mark hanging over Israel from that point onwards. Has God forgiven? Will God forgive? And finally, God passes Moses by. And for the first time in the book of Exodus, he declares himself to be forgiving. The one who will come to Israel and forgive their sins. We're so used to hearing of God's forgiveness, we take it for granted. This is the first time in the whole Exodus journey the forgiveness of God is expressed and God bestows that precious gift on his people. You know what the word literally means? To lift and carry. It means I lift a burden from another person and I place it on their back. And doesn't that point you straight to the cross? Can't you just draw now a straight line straight from this Exodus 33, 34, straight to the cross of Christ? That's where we see the Nassar of God, isn't it? That's where we see the forgiveness of God with Jesus Christ taking our sin from our shoulders and carrying it on his back, bearing the full load of our sin and our rebellion and our wickedness and our iniquity before God. He bears it. Forgiveness is not just something God kind of just does for you in an impersonal way. It's not just like a police officer letting you off a parking ticket. This is something that cost God. He took our burden and he carried it. He bore it and it crushed him. It killed him. He took it to the grave and he buried it there so that the power of sin would be broken in our lives so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free, so that we could stand before God, acquitted and cleansed and righteous. It's the gift of forgiveness, the most precious gift that God offers us the whole biblical story. And because of Nassar, because of forgiveness, because we see forgiveness at the cross, 
it opens the door to all these other attributes of God coming to fruition at the cross as well. When you look at the cross, as we've been doing this morning, you see all these descriptive words that describe the goodness of God. They all just coalesce at the cross. At the cross is where we see the full revelation of the goodness of God. Every one of those six words is there. You see the compassion of God at the cross, driven with rahum toward us. A God who will not, who will not, will not stop. A God who will give anything to redeem us and reconcile us to Himself. Even His own Son, even His only begotten Son, so driven by compassion towards us. A God who is gracious. We see that on the cross. Not a God who gives us justice, not what we deserve. Doesn't even just give us mercy. Doesn't even just withhold judgment. No, He gives us the opposite. He gives us life. He gives us blessing. He gives us His own Son. And He says, your life now can be in Christ. Everything He has is yours. His life, His death, His resurrection, His his inheritance, His place before me, His relationship with me. It's all yours. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. That's grace. We see the long-suffering of God on the cross. This God who was born with the sin of humanity for thousands of years and never, never lashed out. And he's held back his wrath, and he's held back his wrath, and he's held back his wrath, and he gets to the cross and he unleashes it. Finally, he holds it back no longer. And the fullness of the fury of the Father's wrath is spent upon the Son on the cross. Jesus absorbs the full brunt of the wrath of the Father, and he exhausts it so that God's wrath is turned away from us. And we are no longer objects of his wrath. We are now objects of his mercy and His grace. We see the beautiful Hesed of God on the cross, His powerful love, unrelenting love expressed to us on the cross. We see the faithfulness of God on the cross. Faith, it's, the cross is the fulfillment of so many promises God made down through the, the prophets and priests of Israel, right back to Abraham, all the promises. Second Corinthians says all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Every pro- You want to know if this promise or that promise, what the answer is? You look at the cross, it's yes. It's amen in Christ. He answers and fulfills every one of the promises of God. And then God is forgiving. He is Nassar. And we see it beautifully expressed on the cross. So all these attributes of God's goodness, they all come together at the cross, and then they all pour into our lives. That's the most amazing part. We know the goodness of God from the inside out now. We don't just know it because God described himself with these six adjectives in Exodus 34. We know God's goodness because we've personally experienced it, those of us who belong to Jesus. So we know that God is good from the inside because he's been compassionate to us. He's been gracious to us. And so we can say in spite of what's going on in our lives, in spite of what's going on in our world at the moment, we can still say God is good. We don't just say that when things go well, right? We don't just say that when God answers prayers. We don't just, at least in the way we want. We don't say that only when there's something better around the corner from the thing that we didn't like. We say it always because God is good all the time. In the pain, in the hardship, in the stress, as much as in the joy and the triumph and the good times. God is good. And if you don't see it in your own life, all you need to do is look to the cross. All you need to do is look to the cross of Christ. And there you see the goodness of God on display. So what do we do in response to all this? There's not much else we can do except what Moses did. He got to the end of that whole experience and he just fell down and worshipped. 
He just fell on his face and worshipped. There's nothing else to do. Any, any other application that I give you at this point would just be cheap and tacky, I think, at this, at this point. All we've, got to, we've got to ground ourselves in the goodness of God because it will change your life. If you're anchored and steeped in a right view, an accurate view of who God fundamentally is, it will change your life. So I just ask you, is there any way in which you're allowing a little distortion of the character of God into your thinking? Is there any way in which you're living with a view of God that's less than or different to the way God's described himself here? And it may just be a really little thing, but don't undermine its significance in your life. Are you in the moralistic or the therapeutic or the deist camp? Is that the way you see God? Maybe there's something else. Maybe your relationship with your father was so negative that when you think about God as a father, it just it, it messes you up and you struggle to see God that way and that throws things out. Maybe you just feel like really God is fundamentally disappointed in me. Maybe you just feel like basically God is pretty disinterested in me. He's just got better things to do. He just doesn't really care. You feel like God, really when it comes down to it, doesn't actually like you that much. And we sort of shrug that off. We think, oh, well, that's just, that's just what it is. But that is toxic. And if you live with that for long enough, it's going to be cancerous to your soul. It's going to throw your life off, and it doesn't have to. We need to come back, and we need to hear the Lord proclaiming over our lives His goodness. we just got to come back and soak ourselves in this passage, and others like it, in Scripture, where God passes us by as He is this morning and just proclaims His name. We've just got to hear God again saying, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving and faithful. Remind yourselves of that. Remind yourselves of who God is. Remind yourself of who God is in Christ. And remind yourself often that God has been good to you. And may we live out of the goodness of God in our lives. Let's pray. So God, now we, we want to face up to all the ways in which we've distorted who you are in our lives. We want to own up to the ways that we've just allowed little perversions of your character into our thinking. And whether it's been through experiences in our life, God, things other people have said or told us or taught us. God, whether it's just things that we've allowed to come in and creep in over time, we just ask now, Lord, that you would just surface in our hearts any way in which our, our view of you is skewed. God, is there any way in which our view of you and our heart of hearts is out of alignment with what you revealed yourself to with Moses. And if there is, God, would you show us? And would you help us just to name that honestly before you and just lay that down? And we just lay it down, God, this morning and we come back and we ask, God, we want to hear you again proclaim your name over our lives. We want to hear you proclaim your name over our church. We want to hear you proclaim your name over our nation, over our world. Lord, pass us by again and declare to us who you are. Speak to us of your love. Speak to us of your great mercy, your hesed, your long-suffering, your faithful, your forgiveness. In whatever way we need to hear it, God, maybe just one of those words today needs to sink in more deeply than it has before. Lord, you know what our hearts need to hear. You know what our souls are aching for today. So, Lord, we pray that as you pass us by, not that you're leaving us, Lord, but just as in this moment 
you're here with us in a special way. We ask that you would proclaim your name and remind us indeed that you are a good, good Father. For Jesus' sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.